Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. This week, Henry Kerr challenges the view that the American economy is down in the dumps. Often what people will say is what matters for how voters feel is what's happened to their wages very recently, rather than these long-term trends. And John O'Sullivan considers how basket-case economies might bounce back. You need a reform champion. The central bank governor, the finance minister, the president. But someone has to be seen to be buying into reform. And finally... Why the constitutional referendum in Italy matters so much to business there, Adam Roberts explains. It would speed up things like the ability to deal with building permits or foreclosures, the sorts of things that just bog down businesses in Italy. First, though, after months of relentless campaigning, it is at last decision day. In a few hours, we will find out if Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump will become the next president of the United States. If he wants to start, he can start. Go ahead, no, go ahead, Donald. No, I'm a gentleman, Hillary. Go ahead. Secretary Clinton. At times, this was the election we'd all like to forget. I'd like to get to the questions that the people have brought here tonight uh, to talk to us about. And get off this question. Okay, Donald, I know you're into big diversion tonight. But try as we might, it was far too unusual at times to look away. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet, no puppet. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, you're that the, the Russians have engaged... It's just words, folks. It's just words. It may be just words, according to Mr Trump, but words do have a way of distorting reality. And one casualty of campaign hyperbole has been the reputation of the American economy. It's no secret that Mrs Clinton and Mr Trump believe it's in bad shape. Good jobs in many parts of our country are still too hard to come by. Now, these problems are serious. Our jobs are being stolen like candy from a baby. But what do the data say? Henry Kerr, our U.S. economics editor, joins me on the line now from Washington. Henry, there are a number of data we could look at, of course, but let's start with wages. One theme has been that medium wages have been stagnant in the US for quite a long time. Is that still the case or is there a sign of movement there? Well, most economists think that there's been a slight pickup in wage growth this year. Last week, we had some encouraging data showing that average hourly earnings have gone up by 2.8% over the last year, which is the strongest we've had since the financial crisis. Median wages are up 5.2% or were in 2015, which again was very strong growth. So the idea that wages are stagnant is true on a very long term uh, picture, but in actual fact, the recent news has been encouraging. And when you look at the political science uh, literature, often what people will say is what matters for how voters feel is what's happened to their wages very recently, rather than these long term trends. And is that pickup in wages feeding through into consumer confidence? I mean, the American consumer for a long time was the, the driver of the world economy. So we all have an interest in this. American consumers are fairly confident. They're as confident as you'd expect at this point in the economic cycle. Various measures of consumer confidence are saying slightly different things. But one measure, for instance, uh, in September, had consumer confidence at a nine year 
year high. So it's certainly not the case that you can see that much economic anxiety that would lie behind support for uh, Donald Trump or earlier in the election cycle, Bernie Sanders. It's not really the case that you can pick that up in the consumer confidence measure. And that's also reflected when you look at what's driving economic growth in the US. It's overwhelmingly consumer spending. So you can't really see it in that data. And it's a bit of a mystery why consumer confidence appears so high when when you ask people whether or not they think the country's on the right track or questions like that, people are less likely to, to agree with that kind of statement. With regard to their personal finances, consumers are notably unhappy. Another theme of the campaign, I guess, has been that manufacturing in America has been in decline, that jobs have disappeared to Mexico, China, elsewhere. How is manufacturing looking at the moment? What, what are purchasing managers' indexes showing? Well, over the kind of medium-term picture, over the last few years, manufacturing's done pretty poorly. And that's because of the strength in the, in the dollar. When the dollar goes up, America's manufactured goods become more expensive overseas. But because the, that dollar appreciation has kind of plateaued more recently, manufacturing now seems to be recovering a little bit. And the most recent indexes which monitor purchases, the purchasing manufacturing index, show the manufacturing sector in the US uh, is, is expanding right now. The theme of what you're saying seems to be that the economy is actually in a lot better shape than one would believe from having listened to the campaign speeches of, of both candidates. Is that the rosier picture you're, you're conveying? There's something to that. I think there is a bit of a divergence between the rhetoric of the candidates and what the data show about the economy. Of course, one of the themes of this election has been the economic fortunes of specific groups. And I think it is true, for instance, that if you look at white men without college degrees, they've been doing pretty poorly in the economy for a long time as the returns to education have gone up, as they've had to compete more with imports from China and as technology has progressed and so on. So there are, there are trends that affect specific groups. However, when you talk about, say, white men who don't have college degrees, there aren't enough of them to explain kind of widespread support for Donald Trump. We're going to see today over 40% of the country probably voting for him. You know, there are 40 million white men in the in the US with just a high school education or less, which isn't enough to, to explain that. But nonetheless, you can kind of pick out concentrated areas. And that's also true of locality. So it's also true that certain uh, places, you know, in West Virginia, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, have, have done particularly badly. But it's just not a widespread phenomenon. And correspondingly, are there places that have done particularly well where you're seeing less of this economic disaffection? Big cities have done particularly well. Big coastal cities, places like New York, Washington DC, San Francisco, these are all places that are thriving. Also cities with universities, say in the Research Triangle area in North Carolina, has been doing very well. So there is perhaps more kind of geographical inequality emerging in the US economy, which might be reflected in voters' preferences. And indeed, there's some evidence that Donald Trump's voters in the primaries uh, were more likely to be from depressed areas, even if they weren't doing particularly badly themselves, that kind of geographical effect was a more powerful explainer than their own personal incomes. But I also think that you can kind of strain a bit too much to find an explanation for these things in the economic data. I think it's also true that the media echo chamber has a bit of an effect on people's preferences. And as media in the US has become more polarised, and this was an explanation that, that Ben Bernanke, the former Fed chair, has offered for this divergence between the economic statistics and the political narrative, as the media has become more polarised, people are more likely to think, well, if my party's not in power, if the politicians I support are not in power, things are really terrible, and their social media and the news they follow kind of feeds that back to them. And that gives them this pessimism, even if their personal financial situation is actually all right. 
Henry Kerr, US Economics Editor, thank you very much. Thank you. And what do you think? How much can Donald Trump's support be attributed to a malfunctioning economy? You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Now from the world's biggest economy to some of its messiest ones, basket cases in the callous jargon of the markets. John O'Sullivan, our economics editor, is here now to tell us why even some of the world's worst-performing economies can turn themselves around. John, let's start off by defining terms. I mean, which countries are we talking about? Presumably it's not the real basket cases, the North Koreas, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, where political problems would get in the way of any solution. Where are we looking at? We're looking at places that fit three sort of broad criteria. One is that you've had a long period of of underperformance in the economy. So that, first of all, lowers expectations, so people think this place will always do badly. But secondly, it also means that they've got sort of low-hanging fruit in terms of reform. So things have been so badly managed that a few simple reforms can actually give you quite a lift. And also there's maybe some pent-up demand. So businesses have been in a sort of minimalist mode about spending on capital. But once, if the economy was better with better reforms, they might spend a bit more. Um, the second criteria, I think, is that you have a fairly sizable devaluation or some other sort of positive shock that helps you on your external account, on your trading account. For example, this week, the big shock in, in the past week is Egypt with a big devaluation there. So big devaluation. But it doesn't have to be that. So with something like Pakistan, it could simply be that you've had a, a big fall in oil prices. And an Achilles heel for the Pakistan economy is that they import a lot of oil and they get into current account problems because of it. And the third criterion is, I think, that you need a reform champion, the central bank governor, the finance minister, the president, but someone has to be seen to be buying into reform. So you've mentioned Egypt and Pakistan. Where where else? Argentina is an obvious one because we've had a new government committed to reform. There's been a devaluation. So you've got all the criteria there, long period of underperformance a reform champion in in Macri and a much cheaper currency. Russia, I think, is another possibility. Again, cheap currency. You've got a reform champion, not in Putin, but in the central bank governor and in the the finance ministry as well, but unfortunately, perhaps not the Kremlin. So there's a handful of of cases uh, apart from just Egypt. These are very different countries, very different economies. Is there a single recipe for reform and success in all of them? Well, it's not really about particular reforms, because obviously all of them will have different sorts of structural problems. Generally, what you're trying to do is get a very bad economy back on a fairly sensible track. They're going to be in a race between getting inflation down, the inflation that comes with a currency devaluation, and so falling inflation, and rising social tensions because of higher inflation. Now, when you have social tensions rising, the temptation then is to naturally to ease off on the policy reforms, which means the whole thing doesn't really work. But where you've got somewhere like Russia, where you've got a very powerful Kremlin, a very popular president that make you basically take the income adjustment and like it, you've got much more chance of things going well. In Egypt, the concern is that you've actually got rising soft commodity prices just at the time that they're devaluing. So that race may be a pretty difficult one. Argentina's in that race right now. Can it withstand the pain long enough to get to the place where the economy starts to rebound? So from what you're saying, it sounds as if the core reform, the central one, is devaluation. It's getting the currency back to a reasonable value. Well, generally what, what happens in very badly managed economies is that the, the exchange rate gets horribly misaligned. Argentina's a case of, of that. Egypt's a case of that. Nigeria, uh, certainly until very recently, and perhaps even still is a case of that. So generally, it's one single indicator of very bad macroeconomic management. So it's one of the things that does have to change. And looking at these countries that you've been considering, uh, 
where would you put your money, as it were? Which, which do you think it has the best hopes of, of bouncing back most strongly? Well, I mean, the easy thing to say there is just to say Pakistan because it's further along the line, but that's a little bit of a cheat. The way perhaps to think about this is where the, the risks and the rewards are. Egypt right now looks like it's a, ter- a long and terribly hard road ahead of it, but it has a very cheap currency, one of the cheapest in, in amongst emerging markets on a sort of relative basis. It has has put through some reforms in the past, although you'd like it to have done more, but there is a sort of kindling there in terms of a reform basis. And it's got relatively high interest rates, and there's a, probably a fair bit of offshore money that can come back on to, to support the currency. So money will start coming in, attracted in by low exchange rate risk plus high real interest rates. And perhaps the risks seem enormous now, but it's one of the ones that if it can get through the very difficult period, and that's a big if, the rewards for sort of investors and for a real bounce back in the economy are pretty large, I think. John O'Sullivan, economics editor, thank you very much. Last, we move to Italy, where next month the country holds a referendum on drastic changes to its constitution, with the aim of making Italy a more governable country. Matteo Renzi, the Prime Minister, has a lot hanging on the outcome. But what's the view from the business community in Italy? Adam Roberts, our European business and finance correspondent, has been in Italy trying to gauge the mood. He's on the line now from our Paris bureau. Adam, could you begin perhaps by explaining exactly what it is that the referendum is trying to achieve? So the referendum's on December the 4th, and the idea is to see whether the voters will agree to shift more power from the regions to the central government to take decision-making power back to the centre, and secondly, to weaken the power of the Senate to block legislative changes from the lower chamber. And the idea is that if you do both of those things, you have a more powerful government in the centre, and it can begin to do reforms that Italy desperately needs to make it a friendlier place for businesses to operate. So business has quite a lot riding on the result. Yes, I've been around talking to business leaders and to the heads of business associations and individuals who, who really think that this referendum, if it's passed, would give a mandate to the Prime Minister, who's pro-business and pro-reform, and would begin to see Italy tackle the sorts of things that give it a dire rating on the World Bank, ease of doing business, uh, ranking, for example. It would speed up things like, you suggest it's a pretty close-run thing, and the counter-argument to those who say central government would be good for business is to say that they don't want to have an overly powerful government that wouldn't be accountable to the people. And what are the prospects at the moment? Is it expected to pass? Well, although the business leaders are very much in favour, and, and those who would like to see a faster-growing economy, I think, get why it's important. Ordinary voters are less convinced. I think your your opinion polls in the moment suggest it's a pretty close-run thing, and the counter-argument to those who say central government would be good for business is to say that they don't want to have an overly powerful government that wouldn't be accountable to the people. And is this a debate that's dividing on traditional left-right lines, if you like? There is, there is a degree of that, but you also have new political parties coming up in Italy, a little bit like in other parts of Europe and other parts of the world, the five-star movement in Italy, uh, which you could characterize as left-wing, but it's something of a populist uh, anti-establishment party. And some fear that if the referendum did succeed and then the five-star movement came to office, then there'd be a chance for an authoritarian sort of government in the future. So a vote against would be analogous to a Trump victory in the US or the Brexit vote in the UK? Well, there are some who say that the political risk involved in a vote against is the greatest risk that faces Europe in the rest of this year. I think that's overstating it a bit. But if if the constitution doesn't get passed, I think Italian business will be unhappy. Adam Roberts, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. 
to read more about corporate Italy and its impending referendum, pick up a copy of The Economist or visit economist.com. Do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.